Thank you for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast. With me, as always, my co-host, Flashman, Bat Flash, Kirk. Hello, hello. How's it going, man? It's going pretty good. I like that the the Batman mask that you're wearing has the Batman logo crudely pasted smack in the middle of his forehead. I kind of wish that that was the vibe. And if I tried hard enough, it's sewn on, but I feel like if I ripped really hard, oh yeah, it's already coming off. I could rip this thing clean off with my bat strength. <laughs> Don't you wish that Batman, instead of having a bat symbol on his chest, just had it straight across his forehead? Right on my forehead. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, I'm your other co-host, Cam. And as you may have guessed, since Kirk is sporting a flash background, but a Batman mask, we are reviewing the flash this week which was advertised mostly as a Batman movie, oddly enough. Um, the They even had a poster that was like, the Flash was standing there, but there was a giant Batwing uh, plane above him, and like it just barely... They were like, yeah, this is a Flash movie, but also Batman. Everybody likes Batman, right? Um, right. So there was a big marketing push for that. I, I want to talk about that a little bit, Kirk, because... We're reviewing this movie. We're going to do our spoiler-free review like we always do. Um, and we're going to get into it. But it's worth noting, this movie did not do well at the box office this week. Did not. It was a four-day kind of holiday weekend because some people have Juneteenth off. Some people don't still. It's kind of like early goings for Juneteenth as a national holiday. So uh, lots of people were off today. Lots of people were not. But regardless, it did $64 million domestically which is below its three-day projection, which was $70 million over four days. So, like, it was projected to do $70 million over three days. It did $55 million over three days and $64 million over four days. Not um, good, my dude. Not good. Not, not good. The budget for this movie was north of $200 million, which means that... They always, you know, for, for Hollywood, they always say, like, you kind of, like, double the budget to see what you would have to make in box office earnings in order to get into the black. And so you're looking at, like, $400 million. And that's for a normal movie with normal marketing, which doesn't go into the film budget. So this movie had tons of marketing, Super Bowl commercials and the like, um, that I think is probably at least partially not included in that $200 million Budget. So this is a uh, safe to say this is a flop, Kirk. Easy, easy flop. The film is now projected to earn only three hundred and fifty million dollars over its entire theatrical run. Um, there are a number of reasons for this, some of which I don't think have anything to do with the quality of the film. But I think we'll pick up the discussion afterwards because I think. It would be good to have the context of our review into like why we think this happened. And some of it has to do with the DCEU, which is, of course, on its way out the door in favor of James Gunn's new DCU. Some of it has to do with the starring character of the movie being The Flash. Uh, some of it has to do with the person who played The Flash in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of reasons, but I want to kind of get into that after we review it. But just for context heading into this, this was a commercial flop. Um, and, and will, will be so, so there is that. Yep. Big stinker. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to say about it. Okay, Kirk, 
let's get into this thing. You, my friend, have the honor and the privilege of maybe the honor and the privilege of synopsing this film, The Flash 2023. It's funny, I was just talking about that image with uh, Batman, and that's the image that I'm going to use for <laughs> for our, our, our podcast list or our YouTube viewers here. But Kirk, whenever you're ready, please take us through a brief spoiler-free synopsis of mm. The Flash. Spoiler-free. So if you've watched any of the trailers or read anything about online, you know that this is a little bit, uh, a little bit crowded with a lot of a lot of friends involved. We've got Batman. We've got the Flash. We've got Supergirl. We've got more than one Flash, and it all comes to a head in this film as we see the Flash is still trying to decide and come about of who he is and what he is capable of and where he fits in the world. And where better to fit in the world than to bring it all back to Mom, good old Mom. As the Flash's classic story, his classic downfall, is that he is constantly racing against time to find out how to save his mom. We do so in this film, The Flash 2023. Can he save her? Can he uh, partner up with other teammates? Can he save himself, quite literally, with the other version of himself? Where he's from, when he's from, we don't know. You have to see the movie. That is The Flash 2023. Yeah, and by now we've we've sort of seen enough time travel multiverse films to understand how these things go awry uh when you interfere with with time you know the butterfly effect and whatnot so that obviously is at play here um like you said if you're a comic book reader this this sort of is compatible with the flashpoint event that happened in this in the dc comics where flash tries to go back in time uh, to prevent his mother's death and in doing so sort of rips a hole in the multiverse and causes all kinds of timeline issues and runs into all different versions of all different people. And this is sort of the live action film version of that. Right. It's like the, the Harry Potter movie slash book where they have the time Turner and they just try to do all the good things and things get crazy. That's right. And, uh, or the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher, one of my faves. It's, yeah. uh, Dark, very dark, but wonderful at the same time. <laughs> it is, if you think about it, because I was sitting there, I was sitting there watching this movie and going, "We're, you know, here we are again in the multiverse, and mm -hmm. the sheer number of multiverse films that have come out, like in the last three years, is bananas. Right. <laughs> if you actually start to think about it, now obviously." Marvel checks a lot of those boxes because their whole ism right now is the multiverse. Like their whole saga, their whole storyline and continuity right now is multiverse focused. So there's a lot of that going on, but you've also got into the spider verse. You've got um, everything everywhere all at once. You've got the DCEU now you've got all of these different things where the multiverse is in play. And it's, it's kind of crazy that this is like such a common thing to the point where some people are kind of like, ugh, another multiverse film. Like we went from having not very many of these films to having so many that people are worn out in the span of like no time at all. Yes, the market is very much oversaturated with multiverse content. Yeah, and I think there's probably something there that we could, that we could get into in terms of like why is all of this happening now? Why you know, why did writers feel like these types of stories resonated right now? Does it have to do with what's happening in the 
social cultural fabric of you know the greater population or 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 what or is it just people being lazy and being like well marvel's doing multiverse so let's uh let's do it on dc and let's do it in the other marvel stuff and let's do it in you know mainstream or or indie films or whatever so that'll sell tickets is what (laughs) they say apparently uh but let's get into this one kirk i think there's a lot to unpack with this film we're gonna start slow like we always do and get into the acting performances. We're just gonna we're gonna talk about the acting performances before we get into the real meat and potatoes of this movie. Um, Kirk, I need to know from you who you're going with for and the Oscar goes to. Who was the best actor in this film, in your opinion? And the Oscar goes to Miss Sasa Kaji. Plays Miss Kara, who is technically Supergirl in any kind of universe that we find her in. And holy cow! I was very scared about this performance because uh, the CGI was not finished 100% on the trailers for her entrance, for her introduction into the DCEU. And what a shame, as it is her final, first and final appearance. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to see her pick up with James Gunn's DCU. But Sasha Kaje uh, just absolutely destroys the... any performance in this entire film it's it's that simple there's no there's no one closer to her she knew exactly where she needed to come in she knew which levels she needed to be at she knew how she related to everyone and how she was also an outsider to everyone too it's not even a competition i love how she just rolled in here and was not intimidated by anyone and their uh, their long-standing relationship and long-standing reputation in the DC universe. And I also loved that they fixed the CGI. It was very good. Her her flying was very reminiscent of Man of Steel, her super speed and her, and her flying and all her other powers that we get to see. Very cool stuff going on right there. And I didn't know this until I looked up afterwards that she came from soap opera royalty and that can go 50-50. Honestly, we've we've seen people come out of the, the soap opera world and try to get into it, try to make a living outside of it, and sometimes it crashes and burns. But holy cow, her transition was flawless, absolutely flawless. And I'm really, really eager to follow her career and see what happens next, whether it is with the DCU or, or with anything else. Big fan, big shout out, Sasha Kajay. Yeah, I like the pick, Kirk. I think it's a good pick. I thought it was a great debut for her. Uh, as you said, um, with this existing in the DCEU, we know uh, from the from James Gunn's big DCU announcement that they are making a Supergirl movie that will be based off of the, the Tom King run on Supergirl called Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow. Um, don't know if she will be involved in that. That would obviously be a very different version of this because this is sort of like only linked to this movie and certainly at least only linked to the DCEU at this point. Um, But I know uh, I was reading today that she met with Peter Safran to sort of discuss the future, her future as this character. And so, I mean, it's not to say that she couldn't return. It's just, do they have that in the cards? But I think to your point, her performance May have earned her that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I wouldn't be wouldn't be mad in the slightest. Uh, for my and the Oscar goes to, I'm giving the Oscar to Mr. Michael Keaton, who returned as Batman in this film, as was heavily shown in the trailers. I think 
you've probably seen these trailers so many times you you want to hurt yourself cause physical pain to yourself every time you see them you have like an uh, a violent response because i mean they really marketed this movie extensively they wanted it to go um this movie was incredibly hyped incredibly uh thoroughly advertised on youtube traditional media social media everywhere and michael keaton was a big part of that because his return um, to wearing the cowl is is notable uh, because it's it's probably the oldest. I mean, certainly the oldest actor that we've seen be Batman in in a live action movie, and that was pretty interesting. But I like a lot of what Michael Keaton does here. I think the the interesting thing about this is that he he has not played this role in so long, and he's playing an older version of that character and also a, like a multiversal version of that character. So there's just a lot of different variables at play here. And what I was, I think, concerned about heading into the movie is that there's just a lot to, there's a lot of expectation built into that performance and there's a lot of history there that I was worried would show in his performance, like that he would wear it because, you know, in the trailers they show the line where he's like, I'm Batman. And the one where he says like, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. And both of those in the trailer and in the film, I thought were like, eh, you know, I could have done without that. I didn't mind the I'm Batman, but the you want to get nuts was the the let's get nuts. That was kind of, I don't know, that, that felt really flat and really forced and unnecessary, both in the trailer and in the actual film. But beyond that, uh, he gave a pretty untethered performance, like one that wasn't uh, held back by anything that happened prior and one that was pretty grounded. He wasn't trying to do too much. He seemed to understand that his role was a supporting one in this film, which for an actor of Michael Keaton's caliber is probably tough to do, especially since he's kind of in the middle of a renaissance right now. Ever since Birdman, he's been, you know, getting a lot of like a lot of traction with both film and television with dope sick. He's gotten a lot of awards recently, a lot of critical acclaim. He's obviously a very talented actor and certainly the most talented, uh, or the most high profile actor in this entire cast. Um, so I thought there, there was a chance that he would do too much, but he didn't, it was pretty understated performance. He felt like Batman and, uh, I just, I just thought it was, it was really good. I, I thought that he, uh, could have gone overboard and I was worried that he would be asked to go overboard by the director, but he kept it reined in and he kept a very like wise old Batman um, demeanor about him. And I thought that that was really effective. So shout out to Michael Keaton. I, I, I'm mostly giving him this award because I feel like it could have gone totally off the rails and it did not is, is basically where I'm at. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good reason. Like he could have, well also Michael Keaton he has played so many more roles than people know. Um, so many absurd roles, so many just absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I was recently talking to you cam off the screen here about uh, much do about nothing. Cause you're on a Keanu Reeves binge. He's in that too. He plays a character called Dogberry. He's absolutely crazy <laughs> in that movie. It's fantastic. So yeah, he could have, he, he 100% could have, but he really understood exactly the pocket that he needed to sit in and he nailed it. And that's why he's my scene stealer today. Love it. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Michael Keaton. I'd also like to point out that when I typed Michael Keaton, I typed his letters by, I had my caps lock on apparently, and I was trying to shut it off with my shift button. So it's like the SpongeBob meme where it's like Michael Keaton all over my screen here. It's, it's kind of distracting. I'm going to have to do something, but Michael Keaton is so wonderful in that he has never wavered uh, in regard to public scrutiny. He's never wavered in regard to the amount of pressure that a role uh, might have or might assume it might bring with it, uh, including all the way back to Batman, even though uh, there were lots of conversations swirling around on the interwebs recently about how the cast was like, you know, if we mess up Batman, our lives are over, (laughs) our careers are over. And thankfully for them, it was not. And it was uh, fantastic and a great cemented piece of superhero history and film history at that. Michael Keaton absolutely shines in this, even in places where you don't like the look of him aesthetically because you have an idea of how you want your Michael Keaton Batman to look. Uh, there's a little bit of fat Thor going on. Uh, not, not literally, but just a tease there. There's just a little bit of, of just like, Ooh, like shock that that's not, what I wanted him to look like at all. But as you see in the trailer, it doesn't last. So what we have here in in Michael Keaton is just a a fantastic and I don't want to say nuanced. We say nuanced all the time, a fantastic and uh, delicate layered role in his multiversal discovery of himself. And I really love how he punched that through quite literally into his role, into his action scenes and into his relationships with the other characters. Michael Keaton, you got a couple of awards tonight. Congratulations. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. And uh, for my scene stealer, I'm going to go with the other Batman in this film, uh, Mr. Ben Affleck, who we also saw in the trailers. Oh, I'm putting Kirk back in the center there. (laughs) Kirk, go (laughs) talk about Ben Affleck. Oh, uh, Ben Affleck. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I have to to give flowers to Ben Affleck, and this one hurts my soul. This one hurts my soul because it's like, what could have been? You know, what what could have been? We, We had really all told just a taste of Ben Affleck as Batman, as Bruce Wayne. And in this film, we get a little bit of taste of both. He's, you know, he wears the cowl and wears the suit and does some action scenes. Um, Looks great in the cowl. I thought his, his, his uh, facial expressions, his physical acting was solid in those moments. Um, But where he really steals the show and and steals scenes as Ben, as, uh, as Ben Affleck, as Bruce Wayne, um, sort of acting as a mentor to Barry in this film. And man, it just, it, he, he turned into Bruce Wayne in this movie. And, and we've seen glimpses of this. Um, Batman versus Superman was so herky jerky, but there were times where you could, you had a scene with Batman doing some dialogue, talking to Alfred or talking to whoever. And you were like, Oh yeah, this is Bruce Wayne. You know, this is, this is nice. And, there, there was always this potential there, but Justice League was a mess. Batman versus Superman was a mess. Both of those movies so uneven, so unbalanced. Uh, he really didn't get a chance to shine. And in this movie, he doesn't get that much screen time, which hurts, but the time that he's on the screen as Bruce Wayne specifically is awesome. And it's, you know, it's exactly what it needs to be. He's, again, he's you know, similar to Michael Keaton, not doing too much. It's understated. He's just kind of living in the role and not pushing it, not trying to be that, but just 
letting himself sink into that role and be that person. Um, Ben Affleck is such a capable actor. I think a lot of people forget about that because he's been, you know, a name in the tabloid for so long, but he, he is such a capable actor. Um, he can, he has so many different tools in his tool belt or in this case, utility belt, I guess. But, um, it was, it was really refreshing to see him as Bruce Wayne, but that's why it's absolutely gutting me that this is, you know, almost certainly the end. Maybe there's some cameo in Aquaman or something like that, but Ben Affleck has pretty much said that this was, this was it. And I understand that. Um, but man, it just makes it, you know, parting is such sweet sorrow in, in, in this, in this moment, man, it just really hurts. I wonder if it will officially be it. I wonder if he will get such good responses from the public and from the critics and certainly from us that encourage him to try again, especially if James Gunn would want to explore that because you can pinpoint when Ben Affleck's life went off the rails. It was gone girl because his entire physique was completely different. Now, granted, he was prepping while he was filming Gone Girl to be Batman at that time when he was filming that. And uh, he may have even filmed some of it before. I'm not sure. But his body, his his mind, he could have been so much better in Gone Girl and in any of the Batman films. But unfortunately, whether that was the start of it or the height of his alcoholism, that was what was affecting all of his performances for a very very direct period of time. And thank goodness that he has come out of it, that he is in re- in full recovery, sober for X amount of years, and he looks like himself. The light is back in his eyes. And that's why this achievement, it looks like, was unlocked in his eyes to be able to, to portray Bruce Wayne as he should be. And it was a better written Bruce Wayne for him, honestly. That's the, the previous- thing is, is like, he, he's gone, you know, he's gone on the record talking about Justice League production and what a nightmare that was. And and that's because of a number of issues. It's because of Zack Snyder had a family tragedy that right. made him had to leave the, leave, leave the film. You can't plan for that. That just sucks. And, um, on, on, in so on so many levels and that's going to turn any production into a nightmare because you've got a new director coming on. Warner brothers was like feeling major heat about the DCEU. They needed this movie this Justice League movie to work. And so all the all the suits were in there, you know, with their, you know, like too many cooks in the kitchen was basically what was going on with, with their Justice Black League. Berries. They sat there and they said, listen, <laughs> I've got an idea. Yeah, Let's dude. make the giant CGI monster. It'll be perfect. The way he talks about it was just like, ugh, it was not a fun time. So he's been a really good team player during his time in DC. I just wish it could have gone better in this movie shows what it could have been if it had gone better. And I think that's just, that's a tough pill to swallow. It's just, it really is. So Mm. we'll see. You never know what the future holds. As we always say with comic book movies, nobody's ever dead. Nobody's ever gone. Anybody can come back. So, um, you know, he's certainly not off limits, but it's, uh, it feels like it. It just feels like it right now. Yeah. All right, man, let's get into the rest of the film. Let's get into the production director. Andy Muschietti um, certainly had, a very consistent vision about the way that he wanted to go about this film. We know that there was lots of churn going on at DC that may have directed certain plot points. We've heard about different endings being impacted because of the different uh, executives that have been over the, the studio over the time. But 
Let's talk about the movie that we actually got and whether, you know, what were the good parts, what were the bad parts. We'll start with the good, and that's a little segment we like to call uh, Showstopper. So, Showstopper. This is where we, you know, yeah. oftentimes if you've listened to us before, we talk about what we would like to insert. I feel like a big, like, echoey showstopper, stopper, stopper, oh, stopper. That'd be really it's good. It's coming, right Kirk. It's, it's, I mean, we're so close. Okay, I cool. Can taste. I just wanted to. I just want to put that on the recording so yes. that we would do, we do it at some point. So. We have to. <laughs> now we're bound to it. All right, Kirk, what was your showstopper? My showstopper has a lot more to do with Ben Affleck. You have seen glimpses of this. I can't talk about it in great detail, but the the showdown, the fight scene that that his Batman takes on in the city, it's incredible. It's an, it's it's thrilling and quite possibly the best action sequence of the entire film. So when you get to that part in the movie, kind of check your watch and know where you're at and know that that is the best, the absolute best part of the movie. So while I'm glad that it, it happened, uh, there was a lot of other action in the movie too. So one thing that I will also say on in, in summation after that is that the, Action didn't go on for too long for the other scenes. The other the other scenes didn't seem as drawn out as the DCEU typically likes to do. Man of Steel was maybe my favorite DCEU film, and it had so many three-hour fight scenes that by the end of it, I was 10 years older. So this really <laughs> held back on that, and it really learned from itself, I guess. It really said, you know what, the attention span for action can only go so far. You can only punch someone in the face so many different ways and so many different times. So I really appreciated the, uh, specifically, the Ben Affleck Batman fights and the reduction in time in the film for those long, drawn-out scenes. Yeah, because the DCEU has been known for many things, but among among all else has been known for very CGI heavy fight sequences. And I think that's the difference, Kirk. It's like action sequences can be prolonged, but when they are 90% CGI and the scale of the fights is so huge that like in Man of Steel, my big problem with that movie, among other things, uh, they're like destroying the city for like 30 minutes. And it's like, okay, you know? How many buildings can you throw Superman? <laughs> we get it. And Zod You're smashing you. each other into buildings over and over again. It's like it's like an anime <laughs> uh, Dragon Ball Z fight scene. It's crazy. Yes. Um, so it kind of takes you out of it is the problem. Um, but yeah, this movie, they were brief. They were brief and concise in their action sequences. And that's, that's definitely something to be applauded because that's not something we've seen in the DCEU to date. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to my showstopper. I'm going to go with... Some of the story elements in this movie that I thought were pretty refreshing for a comic book movie, which is that they they kind of made the the cameos or the secondary characters make sense in this film. Um, I think a lot of times what we see in comic book movies is cameos as a gimmick, and cameos is just like something they throw in for fan service. And, and this certainly qualifies as fan service, don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, like Michael Keaton, Batman, whatever. But this is how comic books are. Like, the way that this movie is, is how comic books are. Like, this is a Flash story, but the Flash doesn't act alone. The Flash um, has dealings with other superheroes. So, obviously, if he's going about 
his day-to-day and, and is doing superhero things, he's going to have run-ins with these people. And what I liked about this movie was that it just made it feel very natural. Um, and it wasn't like a full house, like, oh, look, like they open the door and, and there's the guest star to the episode and everybody's like, oh my goodness, look who it is. It felt like, you know, this is how it should be. This is this felt like a comic book. And I, I really liked that. They were just, they were timed appropriately. They weren't super gimmicky. It made sense within the story. And I think that sometimes um, what we see particularly on the MCU is that they feel like they have to have a certain level of character in this movie. Or it's like, oh, because it's only an MCU show, we can only get so-and-so. Um, that's the highest profile person we can do. And, and in this, they didn't really think about that. They were just thinking about, from a story perspective, here's what's happening. Who would the Flash run into? Who could the Flash run into? What other soups could be a part of this whole story? And when they took that approach, everything feels a little bit more natural rather than, I think a lot of times with superhero movies, it feels additive or um, forced where they, they write the whole story and then they go, okay, now we need to add in a cameo. What could that be? And that is the wrong way to go about it. And I don't think that was the creative process for this. So I definitely applaud them for that. All right, Kirk, let's move on to the other side and talk about things uh, or choices we didn't like or things that we would have done had we been in Andy Muschietti's position. What are you thinking? Oh, I have so many thoughts for this segment here. There's not enough time, but I've put in um, three bullet points in front of me so that I stick to those to, uh, to go about my day. The first one, critical. Very critical. Barry and Barry's mother. The relationship is so critical. It's as critical as Batman and his parents, as Bruce Wayne and his parents. The relationship has to matter. And I never felt like it mattered enough. I felt like it was so forced that people were supposed to just know that that hurts uh, Barry. and, And it never got there for me. Then they tried a whole lot in several scenes and it just never got there. When I tell you that a CW, rest in peace WB, a CW show, The the Flash with Grant Gustin, season one, they built that storyline so perfectly. Had me crying. I'm not even, I didn't even watch really any more of that series past season one. I tried, but it wasn't good. But they were so good and so careful with that relationship that that was just the absolute crutch of that show. And what should have happened in this film, in the DCEU, The Flash, it absolutely should have been perfect. And it was not. Big letdown, big letdown. The CGI in this film, you've heard a lot about it. You've heard a lot about it in the news. You've seen some of it in the trailers. The director has come out and said that it was intentional because we are seeing it through Barry's eyes as he is racing through the, the world and seeing how he sees things in a warped perspective. While it is intentional, it doesn't make it good. I would say that it needs to be more stylized because there's, it seems like a really gray area. And when you as a director and the creative team have to come out and state, Hey, uh, we, we did that on purpose. I don't think you're lying, but I do believe that there should have been longer discussions on it. Uh, more storyboarding on that more, uh, more just rooms in the creative room, more, more time in the creative room. This is what, is so critical in a time in 2023, a movie that could not have been made to this scale 20 years ago. 
So if you're going to do it, it has to be really specific. And I feel like it was too vague. And that's why the CGI doesn't do it for me. And then finally, I just don't believe Ezra Miller did a good job in this film. I was trying to separate the actor from the performance, from the character. And as I think that's why this, the relationship with Barry and Barry's mother suffered so much because I kept wanting to be proven wrong, honestly. And maybe that's part of it. However, there are plenty of actors out there who lead terrible lives that we come to find out later. And I'm like, man, why were they so good in this movie? (laughs) And this was not that case. I strongly and vehemently believe all the way back to when we saw Ezra Miller appear in the little, uh, the little closed circuit camera, uh, saving someone from a robbery in a gas station. I was like, Ezra Miller, the flash, almost like a Tobey Maguire reaction when people first heard about Tobey Maguire being Spider-Man and then were immediately proven wrong by the movie. Ezra Miller never, unfortunately never delivered on this character. And that pains me very deeply. Yeah, I, I, that's part of mine as well. So, like, I'll just get into it. This, this whole, like, Andy Muschietti was asked about on press tour. Will Ezra Miller be recast? Because there's there's so much weirdness um, around their personal decisions. Um, basically, that they're like using cult-like influence to manipulate people and take advantage of people and groom people and put people in dangerous situations. None of it is cool. All of it is very weird. Um, There are various levels of criminal investigations and cases that are still pending (laughs) right now. Um, So there's some, there's some gross yucky stuff going on there, but Andy Muschietti's response when asked if they would recast Ezra Miller was that nobody else can play the Flash like Ezra Miller has played the Flash. Well, I don't think there's anything very inspiring in this performance. I don't think, to your point, Kirk, that Ezra Miller brings an overwhelming Barry Allen essence into this film. I I thought the performance from Ezra was uneven. I thought that there were times where it was, frankly, just bad. Um, There are times where it's good. But that's what I'm saying is like the consistency level is all over the place. And I don't know if it's just like part of that comes on directing and just not getting the right takes and feeling like they're seeing something different with Ezra than what what comes across in the final edit. But there are times where it's real bad in this movie. There are times where um, the the decisions made and tone of how, how the line is being read and, and, and the way that they're, they're interacting with other people, their scene partners is just so flat and weird. Um, I was, I was surprised by that. I just, lots of people, namely James Gunn, who, who I have come to sort of trust in this industry because I've liked just about every comic book movie. I mean, I've liked every comic book movie that he's made so far. Um, you know, said that Ezra is really good in this movie and said that this movie's really good, and then you see it and you're like, hmm, I don't know. So it was it was surprising. It was frankly surprising. And they, they had all that stuff out in the press like crazy trying to get this thing to go. Um, so that was a bizarre experience. Um, so that's part of mine, director shoes. The other parts of my director shoes are, are very similar to yours. I think you hit the nail on the head on the 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 relationship with mom not being solid and that cannot be messed up. Like this, it's the crux of this movie. It's supposed to be the thing that anchors the human element of this story. Um, so the story, as much as I praised it in my 
showstopper for the elements they did that were refreshing for a comic book movie. There were elements that had to be knocked out of the park that were totally missed, and the the mom relationship with Barry, huge swing and a miss. That cannot be messed up. They have to establish that relationship through over time. They had to build it out, and there was so much filler in this movie that could have been replaced with scenes of kid Barry and mom bonding, doing things, you know, him learning lessons from his mom. And likewise, think about like guardians of the galaxy volume three, where we've got, you know, we have to establish the entire rocket backstory in one film. They do so through a series of flashbacks. And we've seen that technique used before you have to take the time. You have to invest the time to make the relationship feel real. And they didn't in this movie, there was no time invested. It was, Here's one scene with Barry and his mom and oh, they love each other so much. And then she dies. <laughs> and then there's scenes at the end, uh, like there's scenes throughout that are about his mom, but it, it's, there's just really not a lot there. Um, everybody, you know, if you've watched the flash TV show, if you've watched the other films, of the DCEU knows that this is the situation that in the trailers, we know this is the situation. So we're really just expecting that to be fleshed out in a way that just never happens. It just never happens in this movie. Um, other parts, the visual effects again, Kirk right on the money. I think, um, just because something is intentional doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> it's like the visual effects look that way on purpose. It's like, well, you, they looked bad on purpose. So <laughs> it's like, I don't, they still looked bad. You, you may have made that choice, but it was a bad choice. It, it totally takes you out of the film. And it's not immediately clear to the viewer that we're seeing things through Flash's perspective because that's why things look that way. Because guess what? It looks the same in scenes where Sasha Kaje is punching bad guys. It looks the same in scenes where, you know, Michael Keaton's Batman or Ben Affleck's Batman are, are skating around the city or whatever. Like it looks the same. So uh, that doesn't feel like Flash's perspective. It just feels like a deliberate decision. That was a bad one in terms of the visual aesthetic of the movie. Um, and then I also just felt like the plot was predictable in this film. I don't feel like there was any sort of left hook. I don't feel like there were, there were any twists and turns that were unseen. I think people, bash superhero movies a lot for being predictable because generally speaking, it's like at the end the, the good guys win and the bad guys lose and what have you. But this was sort of predictable at multiple different turns in the movie. Um, there's an encounter <laughs> with a mysterious character early in the film that you're like, Oh, I know who that is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just right away. I know exactly who that is and, and, and why this is happening. And that's sort of used, used as like the big, ooh, what is that for the rest of the movie? And you know, you just know exactly how it's going to unfold. And it unfolds exactly that way. And the rest is history. So, yeah, there's just, there's a lot here. Um, but without a doubt, the, I think the two biggest ones, even outside of the story, I'll put that one on the back burner. The two biggest things are, I felt like the Ezra Miller performance was uneven and the, the CGI choices were just bad, just bad overall. Yeah. I, I know everyone's ready to hear our 10 out of 10 score here. So I guess we should just get into that section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's hear, let's go to final thoughts and scores and we can wrap up our review of the flash Kirk. You have the floor. Oh man, how do you even close out a movie like this? We were um, 
we saw this film and I don't, I don't say this. People are going to hear this. They're going to be like, you went too late at night to see this movie. No. Cause people used to do midnight showings. We saw this movie. It started at 10 PM. And because there's this big trend in the, I don't know, in, in Hollywood in the studios minds that they need to give more time for people to get to their seats or they need to get more advertising when people are there in their seats that the trailers last for so long before the movie it makes me furious we started this movie at 10 p.m sat through all the trailers it ended at 1 a.m in the morning and had it been a good film i wouldn't be mad but i'm madder and angry because it wasn't good you have all of this ip that is just sitting there at your fingertips you have all of these stories you can literally pluck good ones from the bad ones and say this storyline that was that has been done a hundred times is fantastic and it always plays and it always sells comic books and it always sells animation and studios like we have so much to dig from even with the flash guys it's so maddening when something like this that's not an original tale doesn't do well i don't get it i do not get it again i have been saying for how many years are we doing this podcast? Four years, maybe, that Cam and I should be consultants. You would give us the final film, and we pick it apart. We fix it, and you go reshoot for another $100 million. I think that's very fair. <laughs> or let us consult on the script. Be on set. This, this is why we need the right people in the right rooms, and the wrong people were in the rooms once again for the DCEU. That said, there are a couple of redeemable moments of this film. A couple. They're big redeemable moments, but there's not a lot. And this is a pretty nice score. I like to think my score is nice. If you like The Flash, great. Good for you. As always, I'm I'm happy that you found something that you like, that you want to play on repeat before you go to bed. Bravo. But for me, today, The Flash gets a 4.6 out of 10 kernels. All right. that's uh, If that's a nice score, then that's... Uh... I'd hate to hear what a bad score is because <laughs> below the Fivsky mark is is uh, that's a scary territory to be in. I don't think any film yeah. wants to be in that area, and so okay, we'll you know the Flash will just have to live with that. Uh, my final thoughts and scores when I when I heard Kirk say this is a nice score, I thought he was talking about the music. I actually really liked the score in this movie. Um, I uh, this is somewhat off topic, but. For me, this movie earns everything by letting me see Michael Keaton swoop down while I get to hear Danny Elfman's Batman theme in the background. Gosh. Oh, man. That was that was the best, man. Like, that movie, that first one, that first Michael Keaton Batman movie with, with Jack Nicholson and that amazing, amazing Danny Elfman score, the da-da-da-da-da. It's just, it's so powerful. I, I love that music. And seeing that, I, I I cried. I was just I was like, this is beautiful. I'm so happy to be here at this exact moment. Um, but that was sort of the high point for me in the movie. I think it's hard because on one level, I really liked what was going on with the supporting characters in this film. I liked I liked Supergirl's whole introduction and the way that they like played with that character. I thought Sasha Kaje was great. I thought the way that they used that character was awesome. Um, I liked the Michael Keaton stuff. I liked the Ben Affleck stuff. There's just, there's a lot there, but everything regarding the flash, I was like, get the flash off my screen. Like I wanted nothing to do with that character. I wanted nothing to do with the story. It just was not, 
I couldn't connect to it on any level because there just was nothing. It, it felt so artificial. It felt so uh, inhuman and and just like overproduced, to be honest. So that was just tough. But there there are good moments in here. I just think that the other thing too, and and I have to acknowledge this because it's just it's part of it. Was this movie was hyped to oblivion? It was hyped, and so that hurts it. You know, I try to stay away from reviews as much as possible before I see a movie and I try to stay away from, you know, reviews before I make my review. So I haven't, I haven't read any critic reviews of this movie outside of like maybe seeing a a tweet here or there, but they went out of their way, like way out of their way to tell us this was this great movie. And Oh, Tom Cruise watched it and said it was one of the best superhero movies ever. And James Gunn calls it one of the best superhero movies of all time. And so that unfortunately played played a role. I'm going in here thinking, okay, well, this thing is supposed to absolutely slap. <laughs> you know, people who have very well informed opinions about movies are saying that this thing is bomb, and I did not get that vibe at all. I was like, I I think this is pretty mediocre. Like it's it's not terrible. It's not great. It's just right there in the middle, and um, unfortunately. The real reason that part of that is the case is that this movie's dead on the on arrival because it's anchored to the DCEU, which no one cares about at all. They have failed to tell a good story that interweaves all of these different characters. And so the Flash that we have in this movie is just not an interesting character. We don't care about this character. I have no emotional connection to this character. And so they have to try to do all that legwork in this film and it just it just fails. It just fails. Um so it's not it's not a disaster, but it's it's really not a good movie. So for me, I gave it a five point six out of ten kernels, and um, I'm sure <laughs> that I will get flack for that score because people will be like, "Oh, you gave Multiverse of Madness this," or "Oh, you gave Thor: Love and Thunder this." That's fine. I think that those movies were truer to their characters than this one was. And here's the big kicker: the star characters in those films are just better, just way better than this character. This character just sucks. So the ceiling for this movie was already really low. And and that's just the way that it is. Yeah. The character can be redeemed with a different actor. Grant Gustin, Grant Gustin, Grant Gustin. But the characterization that Ezra took on with this from the, from years ago, just, just a terrible approach, terrible approach. And it's the way that Ezra Miller approaches every character, to be honest, this sort of like, sarcastic aloof uh chaotic energy that that they try to go with you know the zany eccentric friend and it works sometimes but Ezra Miller is has been overblown in terms of acting prowess I think majorly overblown I think that Ezra is a one-trick pony yeah and for that reason does not deserve any more chances in this industry particularly with the stuff that's going on in their personal life I thought you were going to shark take Ezra. And for that reason, I'm for that, out. For that reason, I'm out. I mean, for that reason, I am out. But <laughs> I want to talk about this movie uh, now that we've scored it and the 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 sort of performance of it financially, you know, as, as a commercial product. I think that... I think that DC knows that this is a... I think they're just trying to squeeze as much money out of these as possible. I think they know that um, 
they've put themselves in a bad situation. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter be like, oh my gosh, DC lost so much money on this movie. What were they thinking? Uh, they were advertising this movie like crazy. They made the James Gunn announcement, which rendered the DCEU inert, and they still released this movie. Well, here's the deal. Scrapping the movie completely still would have lost them more money than putting it out. So I think they knew they were, you know, in a bad situation and just just told James Gunn like, "Hey, we're just going to make we're going to make the most out of it as as we can." But the one mistake that I think they made in the marketing of this film was having James Gunn say that this movie is one of the greatest superhero movies of all time because that hurts the DCU. What do you yes. I mean, you agree with that? Absolutely, because now you have someone who is supposed to turn over a new chapter and to make all of the mess that we've had to deal with as DC fans that want to see DC do well. Uh, there's not, there's a little lost faith, and that hurts. That hurts, and it could have been all political. Him trying to figure out his new role uh, at, at the top, right, as as the chair and, and president and whatnot. And it it stings a little bit. It makes me a little weary of, of who he's going to listen to, who's in his ear for things. Can he completely have full creative direction or will there be compromises too big that he takes? And I hope I hope he doesn't. I really hope he doesn't. I think I think this is telling for the, the future of the DCEU because we're seeing James Gunn as an executive. And I've I've been very positive on James Gunn as a director, but managing people is a totally different thing. Like managing people managing films is different than yeah. managing your own film. And I think that what and this is one thousand percent speculation on my part, but here's what this feels like is James Gunn's an exec now, and so he's the guy in the meetings with the director of the movie. And so he's meeting with Andy Muschietti, and Andy's telling him, oh, this is my vision for the movie, and this is how it works, and this is why I did that. And James Gunn's got all the, you know, inside baseball info, and he's too close to it to see that it's actually bad. Whereas, like, the way he makes movies, they're going to turn out good because he has a level of detail and care and storytelling prowess that not many people have. And so his movies are going to turn out good. But I think he was too close to this project to be able to see that it's not as good as he thought it was. And he was getting told by Andy every day, oh, here's all the amazing things that are going on, and here's how this works on this level and that level and what have you. And so he's yeah. seeing it in a different way. Yeah, and it's very well could be, and I think in a lot of cases it is, is that you have great people doing great things, uh, but film and theater is such a collaborative process. Not one single person's vision can do something. And I don't know a lot about Andy Muschietti. I cannot say his name, (laughs) but I would say that if you are trying to control too much, then you can't actually allow for other people's ideas to seep in and really make it a collective mosaic of every single person's information and then you have to orchestrate that and so if you can't orchestrate it well then it falls apart so seeing james gunn hearing james gunn say that it hurts a little but everyone deserves a chance of growing pains and getting their footing of how they're going to direct people and maybe in the future we hear things like hey andy's a great guy and uh 
uh, we tried. We tried really hard with The Flash. Didn't get great reviews. You know, not every movie is everyone's favorite. That would have been a better answer than it's the one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. Yeah, I think that, again, this is all 100% speculation. That's just what it feels like from the outside looking in because I've, I've you know, I equate sports, I equate a lot of things to sports. I've seen a lot of times when coaches love their players a lot. Mm-hmm. They tend to see not be able to see their flaws. And sometimes I think that James Gunn, he always works with people that he loves to work with. And I think that, you know, Andy Muschietti was not chosen by James Gunn, but James Gunn has spoken very highly of him. He's been chosen to direct Batman, the Brave and the Bold, and yada, yada, yada. So he obviously likes him. And I think that when you're in that role of influence where you're, you know, you're the top dog and you have to be able to give feedback and stuff like that, it's hard to do. And it's really hard to do with people that you like. And I think that's why a guy like Kevin Feige, regardless of what you think of Marvel right now, what he was able to do for those first three phases is extraordinarily rare. And I think that's because the way people talk about him, they're like, he knows what he wants and he wants it done that way. He's got a specific vision. He's going to see it done. No matter who's in the director's chair, he's going to tell them how they, how he feels about it. And that's a skill. It's, it's a leadership skill and it's tough. So I think there will be, there will need to be some time, but I, I think it was a bad choice for him to go out and say that. I think he probably recognizes that now. Um, but as far as people saying, what is DC doing releasing these movies? And I was in this camp early on. I was like, just can the whole thing. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have shareholders to answer to, man. They, they can't take right. completed films and trash them. So they got to try to make do with what they, what they can. They had to get that James Gunn announcement out, even if it hurts these films. They had to do it to save the future of DC. But... It's going to hurt these films, and they're just going to have to live with that. And I think that's what they're doing. I don't think they're. I don't think at all that they're just like a bunch of bumbling idiots over there. I think they know that they that mistakes were made, and they have to try to make do with what they have. Um, so it's also. Uh, I don't know if this was just like a, a random company, or if it actually is from Nike. But it looked like Nike came out with the whole shoe line of all the superheroes. Was that correct, or is that my my? I don't know. I don't know anything about that. If it is, it said Nike. It said Air Jordans, and the Flash shoe, dude, looks real cool. <laughs> it looks real cool. I'm not like a shoe guy, but man, I would wear those. But now I don't even have any, I don't know, excitement to buy them because they're just. Ah, you know, they're dead in the water with, with this film for me. So if you are a fan of the film, if you liked this film and you want those shoes, we will not be giving them away, but I encourage you to go get those and any other kind of the flash attire out there. Nice. Yeah. I think the other thing is the character, right? The flash, like yeah, you, it's not the most popular hero ever. And if you don't mm-hmm. have the brand equity of Marvel cinematic universe behind you, and you're just the DCEU, um, people go, The Flash? Okay, who cares? Yeah, I think the mainstream, this this was not even on their radar. They, you know, this was like, it's, who was going to see this movie? It's really just like super movie fans, but not even like the Zack Snyder fans might not even go see this movie because it's not a Zack Snyder production. So it's like, I don't know, your, your, your slice of the pie that you're going for might be remarkably small because this isn't Batman. This isn't Superman. It's not Wonder Woman. It's the flash. Yeah. And you know, Aquaman did okay, but that's Jason Momoa. People like Jason Momoa. Ezra Miller is not Jason Momoa. Um, so I just think this was 
always going to do bad and it did it did poorly and here we are and it speaks just like what you said you know this this character a tertiary character but think of think of iron man he was not front and center on people's minds when that movie came out it's like this is the start of something yeah, okay right and the characterization the the specific actor in that role made it shaped it created yes. it uh, along the lines of the creative team they knew where they wanted it to go and they put all of that effort in in this case Ezra was just zany and people were like that's kind of cool but that's not a character right at all and yep. it suffered it did it did well that's the flash and who knows if Ezra Miller will return as the flash I think both of our opinions is a resounding please don't please please don't return as the flash and we'll see what happens but that's our review that's what happened in the box office and everything you need to know about The Flash. If you like this episode, be sure to either rate us on your favorite podcast provider. Uh, certainly be sure to subscribe either on YouTube or on your favorite podcast provider and leave, a, leave us a comment if you're watching anywhere where you can. And we will leave you with that. And as we always do, a thank you for our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, as well as the band Rhetoric that created all of our fantastic original music we will see you guys next week talk to you then <laughs>